This is an audio-only episode of Friends and Neighbors, a podcast from Mr. Rogers and Me filmmakers, the Wagner Brothers, in which we discuss depth and simplicity in an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, actor Joe Smith. The longer we produce Friends and Neighbors, the clearer it becomes what type of people really resonate. Self-starters and creatives, to be sure. Optimists, catalysts, builders, those who value empathy, relationship, and community. People who share their humanity, their very humanness with humility. The full spectrum of feelings, strengths and weaknesses, confidences and vulnerabilities. I've known Joe Smith since our time together at Syracuse University in the early 90s. I don't really remember meeting him. He was always just sort of there. And he was always all of the above. Joe was the unofficial fifth member of my beloved college band, Smoky Jungle Frog the only musician ever invited into our fold. He frequently joined us on stage to play the then-hip, see also John Popper, harmonica, but that was just a sideline for Joe. Back then, when our fellow Orangemen were starry-eyed actor wannabes, Joe had already tread the footlights. To me, he seemed fully formed, the byproduct of being raised in the theater. He was confident but vulnerable. He improvised characters on a dime and wrote skits and shows just for fun. For 30 years now, Joe has popped up on my media box with some regularity. The approachably handsome, often nerdy, usually self-deprecating everyman. The Best Buy guy. The Cheez-It scientist. The clueless husband. Whether in a lab coat or a golf shirt, Joe's humanity is always on display. His characters are never cool or perfectly composed. They're doing their best to make sense of a complex, convoluted world. Like, if we're being honest, most of us. Joe and I hadn't really talked in years. We hugged and high-fived at the premiere of Mr. Rogers and Me in 2012, but our last deep discussion was when I visited his Hollywood apartment in the early aughts. When I called Joe just a few days ago, he told me he was on alert. His partner of 16 years, Amy, has a chronic condition, and he may, he said, need to jump off to help her at any time. And then we began, first discussing our time together at Syracuse, his early acting in his parents' Worcester Mass Theater, and his journey to La La Land, where he's appeared in too many movies, commercials, and voiceover gigs, to count. But when our conversation was interrupted by a call that Joe had to take, it turned especially deep and simple, and very real. We knew each other in college, and I was trying to figure out how and why, because I was like, well, Joe's just was always in Syracuse, right? And I'm figuring you knew Paul Peralt from Smoky Jungle Frog, who played Bass, I'm guessing, right? And did he act with you, or did he date someone who was (laughs) acting with you? It's possible. My freshman year, I was a theater major. Then my sophomore year, I was a film major. And then I ended up making up my own major. My wife always makes fun of me that I have a degree that means absolutely nothing. I have a BFA in special studies or selected studies. (laughs) It's just something that is just totally meaningless. You were, in essence, trying to combine the idea that you wanted to be an actor within the context of media? I have a self-designed major called writing for performance. It was meant to sort of build on the acting stuff, but to also focus on writing for any sort of script, anything that's meant to be performed and not just be a final product uh, on the page. They had the Visual and Performing Arts College, which had to be very sort of creatively focused, and the Newhouse School of Communications, which was very industry focused. It was kind of like neither the twain shall meet or whatever the expression yeah, is. totally. And there were a number of courses I wanted to take. There were film writing courses in VPA, and there were TV writing courses in Newhouse, and you couldn't right. take both. I found out, instead of trying to petition to school to change the rule for everybody, I just found that there was always several other ways of getting around that. There was like an, oh, if you have the orange form, that's a VIP form, and you just need to get the professor to sign off on that, and that overrides everything else. 
I so feel just, like that's an insight on you, generally speaking. Well, there's just, there's so many times when that comes up in life. There was a fable that I remember hearing years ago, a young boy and some sort of evil genie that wanted to break the boy's spirit. So he set up the boy with a series of impossible tasks, hoping to discourage him and break yeah. his spirit. See that mountain over there next to the river? I want you to move the mountain to the other side of the river. Here's a teaspoon. And obviously he wanted like the kid to go take a spoonful of dirt and cross the river yeah. with it and dump it on the other yeah, side yeah. and do that two or three times and get discouraged and give up. What the boy did was walk past the mountain, follow the river to the source, and there was a little crack in the dam, and he shoved the spoon in the crack, and it made a little bigger crack, and it eventually bust the dam, and it changed the course of the river to go to the other side of the mountain. There are so many times when there's a better way. I'm always kind of looking for those ways, especially when it seems like the spoonful, you know, uh, at a time route is kind of arbitrary and right, nobody's right, meant right, to do right, that. Right. If you've ever been to Vegas, there are all these shows that the tickets for which are like $75. But if you talk to just about anybody, you can get comp for within five minutes. You're like, you know, it's like, oh, I'll just I'll talk to the cabbie Ben Eisen here. Here's a couple of comp tickets. It's almost this structure where like nobody is actually expected to pay $75 for these tickets. They're just giving them away. I wonder how that relates to where you grew up. We moved to Worcester at 74, and my parents uh, started a, a professional regional theater company called the yeah. Worcester Foothills Theater Company. I grew up around theater, which kind of did a couple of things for me. One, it just introduced me to theater in this very matter-of-fact kind of way. A lot of times mm, when people right. um, who are not from some sort of showbiz family, right. they want to do it. It's this, it's this leap of imagination, like, oh, my God, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take over my parents' dry-cleaning business, but I'm going to chase my dreams and do this. Yeah. And, and because my parents were always in theater, it wasn't it a leap worked. of faith. My parents were also essentially administrators. They were producers. Right. They, my mom was the PR marketing person. I had exposure to all this creative world, but from an administrator's perspective. So I had this very grounded kind of notion of what it involves. And when I got to Syracuse, almost everybody else in the drama department, they were the yeah. star of their high school drama program. Right, totally. So they were used to the applause and the make-believe and, and the fun of it. My parents were always very encouraging with creative pursuits, but they also encouraged me to think like a producer and not just wait for the phone to ring and for somebody to offer you yeah. a job, but to create stuff from scratch and to build your audience. What was the first experience you had in the foothills? My dad was in touch with some film people when I think I was 12. And I laid down some audition. And I remember watching it back even later on when I was 12 and being like, oh, this is not good. And here's how old it was. It was taped on beta. I remember feeling kind of proud of what I was doing on stage and in college when I started doing plays there. And some of it was that reaction of, okay, oh, this is getting a laugh. This is, I, I did this audition and I got cast. So this must have, you know, must have done something right. But some of it also is just having that sense of, is almost the removal of that, of, of having that just sense of play I'm sure, you know, every artist gets to this point where you have a natural inclination to do something. You have a creative energy that you want to put out there. That's the internal organic creative instinct. Then you've got your technical stuff. You need to learn how to do it. The ideal is to learn that technical stuff, get it in your bones so much so that you're no longer thinking A, C sharp, whatever. You're just singing your heart out again. I always had a sense of play and a sense of creative energy that I could bring to stage and that I, I felt good about that early on with doing some shows at, at Syracuse and early on at Foothills. But then the more I learned about it and did it, the more I felt I could apply that, what I've learned and fine tune it and those technical elements. And just like almost a, especially doing theater, because it's almost like a scientific experiment. When you feel like you're really doing good work as an actor, is it similar to singer, songwriter performing where when you're utilizing like these skills that you've acquired, but unconsciously at a high level, is it similar to you where you've got skills, you've practiced, 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 and then you just kind of jump off the cliff. And if you're really doing it, you fly. 
that's absolutely the ideal. And I love getting mm. to that place. I love being really prepared because it allows you to right. get to that place because you're not thinking of your lines or your blocking or, or anything else that you're just, you've done it enough. It's in your bones. You're comfortable. It's like the Pledge of Allegiance. You can say it, you can sing it, you can do an accent. You're not thinking what's the next word. So I, I do love getting to that place. And I think you can meet that halfway. And this is part of what sometimes I try to tell my students is that all of these magical little moments of improv or a magical little unexpected thing Half of them are things that you can actively anticipate and plan for them. I have gotten jobs before because I'm doing finger quotes Air because quoting. I'm a brilliant improviser. When in fact, I have tried to anticipate some of the curveballs they might throw that way and mm. be prepared for them. Right. For instance, one of the things that happens sometimes at an audition for a commercial, because it's, you know, commercials are usually maybe 30 seconds or 15 or whatever. And the people who are auditioning actors for this are seeing hundreds of people. So one of the things that they will do sometimes is, you know, you've got your script, it's 30 seconds, you do your bit. And then at the end of that 30 second script, Sometimes nothing. They will not say cut. They will continue rolling. They will not say thank you. They will just let things continue just to see what you do with that time, yeah, yeah. to see if you stay in character, to see if you add a funny little last bit, to see if you do something funny with this kind of weird weighted silence and waiting period. And the one thing you don't want to do is just kind of look at them and go, okay, that's it. Did yeah, I get it? Scene. So if you know that going in and you anticipate that, you can plan for something to do with that unanticipated you know, moment that might look brilliantly improvised when in fact you've thought for 15 minutes before yeah. you walked into the room. That's the sense I got when I watched the clip that you put up about the phone call. You can almost see the math happening in every <laughs> micro reaction on your face and in your eyes. I take that as high compliment indeed, especially when you're, you're by yourself. It's always interesting to see the difference between the text and the subtext. What am I saying to you versus what am I thinking or what am I meaning mm, to say to you? Mm. And sometimes it's the opposite. When I watch the reel and your work over the years, I wrote down these two things. First, I put in my notes, always upbeat, approachable, cool, but not competitive. But also there's like this tension between humanity and humility. You seem to always get at the uncomfortable nature of humanity by just letting the honest subtext leak out a little bit at the edges. <laughs> Does that make sense? The cheese it dude, the car guy, the doofus Best Buy husband is the best example, right? I'm approachable. That's a word that I you often that see approachable or every man or whatever. And part of what they mean there is he's not really, you know, tall and rugged and handsome. He's not a little funny fat guy. He's a medium average, you know, whatever guy. And with commercials, that is often meant it's the guy, and I've aged out of this category a bit, but like the implication for a lot of uh, commercials aimed at men anyway is that you'll yeah. get the girl if you buy this thing. So you can't be crazy good looking because then they'll be like, oh, he's going to get the girl anyway. I would add there's another version for the women. It's mm. we know your husband's an idiot. You got to put up with them and just silence his idiocy and purchase what you know is the right thing to purchase. Look, we know your husband's a decent guy. His heart's in the right place, but he's That's a right. moron. You're the smart person, so let's talk to you. And it's just me throwing my hand and going, I don't know how to feed myself. Uh, right. yeah. <laughs> the kid's going in the dryer, right? There's a couple of cheesecakey outfits there, and the hair's kind of squared and Clark Kenny. I mean, like, don't sell yourself <laughs> short. There's a little bit of it like, well, I could take off this Best Buy shirt and fly away with you. Thank you. Well, it is that same blue. Um, that's very flattering. Yeah. What you uh, very kindly call the, the Clark Kent haircut, my wife calls the boys regular. Like a piece of rubber Bob's big boy. Kind of thing, you, know? <laughs> you can just take off in one piece. and <laughs> right. yeah. How do you think of the character? How do you get there? What do you, what's the process for you? 
I try to clue into the spec and take as much as I as I can from it and not just plaster on my own idea of what they want. Mm-hmm. However, sometimes the spec is not so much one idea from one person, it's 11 ideas from six people. The thing that I tend to do is not even necessarily something that I would recommend most other actors do, but because I think I'm very good at it, I'm also a writer. I tend to try to think of it as a writer and as a director, yeah. and what do I think would make this spot or this character or this moment work be fun. Money, sell the product. Um, and I try to do at least one thing that other people aren't going to do because, uh, you know, they're seeing, again, several hundred people for any one kind of thing. At the end of the day, literally and symbolically, at the end of the day, there's, you know, six or seven people who would get a vote. They've just watched 300 people do the same 30 seconds and they have to talk about which, who did you like? Yeah. And the more that you can give them the uh, an end to this sentence. So how have you managed there must have been moments when you were like, this is not going well, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of tactics do you have when you're, you know, really bumping into adversity? It's funny. I, I am happy to answer that question. I will point out that the premise of your question is that I have figured those things out. When you see somebody or hear somebody being interviewed, the implication is that this person has succeeded in they some arrived. way. You, you, yeah. you don't you don't hear interviews that go, you know, I struggled for years as an actor, and then I thought I'd, I'd take some classes and really, you know, work at it, and that still didn't work out. So now I'm hosting it in Applebee's, and I'm, you know, kind of hoping, and like the end, like it's you, you don't hear that. So I'd say, like, I, I don't know if I have huge secrets other than that. Is it's it's certainly a moving target. The things that are, you know, helping you this decade will not necessarily help you next decade. When I moved out to LA at 30, which is already old uh, in LA, that made me rethink that like that whole spoonful of dirt analogy really came into play then because there are all kinds of direct spoonful of dirt at a time approaches in showbiz and Hollywood that are fine if you come out here at 22. But at 30, I did not want to try and hopefully use all my connections to maybe hopefully get a writer's assistant position and sit in back of some 23 year old fetching their coffee yeah. so that I could spend a couple of years doing that, making 10 grand a year and maybe get considered to write a spec for the next, you know, thing or join an improv troupe that they you know had to pass through five levels of classes yeah. to get to their Saturday night show where maybe an SNL person would come and scout. So I found some momentum with commercials and voiceovers, both of which I kind of fell backwards into. Sometimes you just embrace what embraces you back. Mm. And just, you know, wow. you, you, you find yourself, you know, just kind of floating out there and putting a little feelers out and seeing, you know, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? And sometimes you, you know, you embrace what embraces you back and voiceover did and commercials did theater did at the time. And, and so when I moved out to LA, because I had some momentum with commercials and voiceovers, I was able to hook up with an agent out here who I'd been working with, uh, on the East coast. I tell people that 95% of my work is looking for work. It's right. the, you know, that's always the, the ratio out here. And I am currently actually in a position of having to rethink a lot of things. Uh, certainly with COVID, I, I pivoted towards, you know, more voiceover stuff that I could do from home and from some teaching. I've been teaching this last year and a half. And I did before that, but that was, that's been a bigger portion of the pie. There was a director I remember said after the shoot, and it had been a very long shoot day with, I could tell the director was getting frustrated with all the things that the client wanted and just things that they didn't think made sense, but they're paying the bills. And just the guy said after this, he's like, you are a damn professional. You rolled with so much stuff. If you remember the you know commercials, it's, it's me in a white lab coat on a yeah, white totally. set with a, like a light blue shirt and a red tie. And the only way this light yellow cheese it popped is if it was yeah. against the background right. of the red tie because it was against the white or whatever, you couldn't see it as well. And initially we were playing a game of like operator with the director and the DP having to look, okay, and he'd be like, a little to the left, a little closer to you. And I finally just said, could you just turn the monitor around and I will center the cheese it against my tie. We don't have to play this five minute game of operation. We can just look at it. Uh, like I will place it where it needs to be. 
I wonder also if you have more empathy than the average bear. And so instead of being stuck thinking about Joe and Joe's relationship to the cracker, you're mm-hmm. able to be present enough to know that you're in relationship to a bunch of people in the room and the work that you need to do. And instead of only worrying about Joe, you're going to be a part of a team. It's actually more thinking like an audience member, which is an important perspective, I think, for any artistic person is to remember what it's like before you started creating and when you just were enjoying yeah. and, and yeah. taking that in. It seems like a, an important kind of human quality to cultivate, yeah. to, to have an awareness of those around totally. you and that you're not yeah. this island. You want to have a sense of reading the room. There's certainly a, a balance to be struck, but you, yeah, you need, you can't just, you know, as an actor, you can't be the equivalent of, you know, six band members all soloing at the same time. Like it needs to right. be working towards right. a common goal. Not only is it good for you and I to listen to each other, but yeah. if we're in a scene, it's good for us to listen to each other, right? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like those lessons are applicable to acting and or life, to singing and or life, to leading an organization and or life. Yeah, absolutely. I love that with your documentary and, and other celebrations of Mr. Rogers, he is really such a wonderful antidote to, and I hate to just yeah. use kind of buzzwords, but toxic masculinity or this transactional, just everybody's yeah. just seems like a, a white male notion of just everybody's out for themselves. And it's just a bunch of competing interests just colliding mm-hmm. and you have to collide harder than they have to collide. That there it's, is no, it's, it's win or lose. It's a zero sum game. I can't just win. I have to make sure you lose. And it's, it's just antithetical to kindness and compassion. You jokingly said earlier that commercials commerce is right in the center of it. So, yeah. but also because you were raised with this sort of pragmatic approach, like, yes, it's magic, but also it's work. Yeah. I imagine that you must not like wrestle with that as a binary in the same way that, you know, I kind of made front and center on Mr. Rogers and me. I haven't had as much of, I think, occasion to wrestle with it because sometimes the my creative pursuits have been fairly binary. You know, when I'm doing a commercial, I know that selling the product is the primary thing. There's no, yeah. there's no debate about that. The commerce is the thing. The the movies that I've done, my part in them have it's either been big parts in in tiny little movies which don't expect to make money anyway, or tiny little parts in huge movies which are going to make or not make money regardless of me. Right. So it's not like I'm, you know, I'm going to be the new Ant Man. As the chronology of Joe and my conversation was reaching the current day, he got a call he had to take. So I took off my headphones, pressed pause, and stepped away. When I returned, Joe told me it was Amy's doctor, with whom he was on a first-name basis. And then he began describing the regularly occurring indignities of our healthcare system. Heck, most of our systems. And we began again. One of the the big lessons of, uh, I say COVID, but just in general, is that I am constantly amazed at the amount of energy and focus and setback and all that that you encounter, not even trying to, with, you know, some creative pursuit or some life pursuit or building a business or whatever, just handling life, just maintaining, just treading water and not sinking. We feel our plate is full and then the septic system stops working. The refrigerator stops working. The cat gets sick. You feel you're at capacity and then three more things happen and you just got to figure it out and prioritize. So you just got real. I keep reminding everyone, I'm like, guys, we were basically in fight, freeze, or flight for 19 months. I mean, a lot of people still are, right? I feel like this is what I turned to Fred for. It is these deep, profound questions. And so that's what I love to talk about. That's what I meant by your humanity, Joe. When you let it leak out, you're showing us that you're human. And so much of acting and so much of life is not acting human. It's hiding that we're human, that we fart, that we barf, (laughs) that we get sick, that we die. And I'm not trying to be macabre, but you know, right? So it's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you because you've always had access to that, Joe. 
Thanks, man. And I, I don't know if I've, I've chosen to have access to it, I guess, to some extent that I have, but that stuff exists, whether you acknowledge it or, or not, you know, uh, health issues and, and uh, you know, problems and yeah, life. family issues and life and all that kind of stuff. And it's hard to know how to deal with. It's hard to admit. It's hard to admit in this business because this business is very yeah. success oriented in terms of the humanity. I always imagined that as life went on until I got old and started to fall apart, life would get each day would either be better than the last or the same. You don't think that it's going to be better at 30 than it is at 50. Like nobody yeah. expects that. And so it's hard. That's part of what I appreciate about you, about this podcast, about Mr. Rogers, is just asking those questions. What do I need? What can I bring? They're not necessarily questions that everybody asks themselves. Not everybody asks themselves questions. They might say, what yeah. do I want? But <laughs> not, right. what What should I be? Is this good? Is this working? Am I happy? I don't want to make broad statements about Hollywood, but of yeah. course you're in a center of a business that is predicated on exterior, yeah. uh, at least some degree of exterior sort of dynamic, right? And yeah. yes, there has to be interior stuff, but you're right. It's not warts and all. It's not go ahead and show your vulnerability. You've, you're, you got to be bulletproof, right? Nobody's that way. That's no one lives that way. Even when I've been on the good side of it, it doesn't feel like it's built on, on that solid a foundation. Like beginning actors recognize me from a commercial and yeah. ask me for yeah. advice, not because they think I'm a brilliant actor because they've seen me in a play, but because I've been on television. Oh, you're the guy talks to the cheese. You've achieved something. It's hard to take recognition or compliments if, as rarely as they come because they're based not necessarily on you were great, but like, oh, I've seen you. You, right. you got a thing. You scored a thing. It, you've yeah. been on the media box. Most of the things that we're wrestling with have a relationship to things that most people have been wrestling with since time immemorial. <laughs> but to your point, we're not, we don't spend enough time being honest about them. An audition is that heightened situation where yeah. You know, there's two parties. They both want something from the other. One person desperately needs it. One person just needs to find that one gem out of the 500 or whatever, but they both want something. Actors will often come into the room trying to play it cool or confident or brassy or like that salesman firm handshake. Hi, I'm the guy for you, whatever. Instead of being like, Joseph Smith, I'm here from, you know, CESD. Do you have any direction for me today? Or just some very chipper kind of salesman thing. If I just, yeah. you know, kind of casually be like, Hey, how, how's it going so far? How you doing? How you doing today? Like, and you and you see their shoulders go down, and they're like, "Oh, yeah. they're just talking to me like a person yeah. who has like who's you know waiting for lunch, and it's hot in here, and they have to yeah. like, and and sometimes that just that you you just see that humanity, just like you see them downshift, and they just go, "I'm doing all right, man. How you doing?" Some wonderful moments can be had there, just recognizing that weird little layer of humanity underneath everything. I wrestle with whether I've made good on him saying spread the message, or whether I've made good with my fifty years on earth or whatever, yeah. I come back to that quote, which is there's something of yourself that you leave at every meeting with another person. Hmm. And that means every other person, right? Yeah. Including the casting guy you'll never see again and the actor who you just saw 300 of before. Yeah. And to your point, it's a choice. Are we going to be kind to each other and try and meet each other where each other are? Yeah. Or are we going to you know, use power dynamics or whatever? I'd love to see people who can deal with their own humanity and vulnerabilities and all that and still go out and, and get to bat and put creative work out there. Nobody wants to just be the person getting pulled into the quicksand by the person who can't stop drowning. But there's got to be some room to show the cracks in the facade because we've all got them. They're not going to not exist because we don't show them. For a dozen or so episodes now, I've been closing with pearls of Fred Rogers' wisdom connected with each conversation. Sometimes those conversations come to mind immediately. Other times, I have to search the internet for clues. Today, I walk to my bookshelf where a small collection of items from the making of our film provide a constant reminder. There are signed copies of Amy Hollingsworth's The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers and Tim Madigan's I'm Proud of You, plus our Heartland Film Festival and American Public Television Awards. And in the center of it all, 
there is a tiny kid-sized copy of You Are Special, Neighborly Wisdom for Mr. Rogers. Inside, in his beautiful penmanship, Fred wrote, for Benjamin, on his birthday and always, from Your Real Neighbor. I opened to a random page and began reading. The greatest gift you ever give is the gift of your honest self. In the years that I've known Joe, as evidenced in this conversation, he's given nothing less than his full humanity, his deep humility, the full spectrum of feelings, strengths and weaknesses, confidences and vulnerabilities. At the height of his confidence, as Joe shared his workaday insights on how to audition or move mountains with a spoon, he also shared his deepest vulnerability. Life is hard and often gets harder. And sometimes it feels like nobody warned us. There is no normal life that is free of pain, Fred Rogers once said. It is the very wrestling with our problems that can be the impetus for growth. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download our podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what we're doing here, please, for heaven's sakes, rate, comment, and share Friends and Neighbors with your friends and neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. <laughs>